Uh, we kicked off last week his new series called Meeting Jesus, um, and I, it's been a, a great series already for me. Um, I say that just because of the fact that it has given me an opportunity to reflect um, on, on what it was like for me to first meet Jesus and the way that I have grown in my relationship uh, with him and, and with others as well. It's been just a, a really powerful thing as I've been studying and it's really a simple series just going through the different stories in the gospel of people coming and meeting Jesus and, and, um, and, and yet super powerful because it speaks to us and how uh, we come to him as well. Okay, so, so as part of that, it's been a good series for me. I hope it's going to be a good series for you. We're continuing that today. As we get started, I need to start with just a really quick survey. Okay, and this is informal, but it's a survey I've wanted to do for some time, and at some point, maybe I'll make it more formal. Um, but I just want to ask you a, f- a few questions, and this is for all of us. Um, if you are or have ever been married, okay, so... Um, uh, if, if you're married now, or if you're a widow or a widower, or if, if you're divorced, whatever, this applies to you. So the question is, how long have you or were you married for? Okay, and I'm just going to kind of just ask, and I want to see, uh, uh, just get a feel for what this is like in our congregation. So if you've been married for more than five years, or were at one time married for more than five years, would you raise your hand? Five years. Okay. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. Good job, Rexine. (laughs) Hand down. Anybody 50 years? Okay. 60 years. Okay, 50 years? 60 years. Oh my goodness. 70 years. 60 years. That's awesome. Let's just give them a round of applause. Okay. And and we learned not much there, but now I want to know how long did you date or did you court or whatever you called it before you got married? How, from the point at which you started dating to the point at which you tied the knot, how long was that period? Anybody more than a year? Okay. More than two years. More than three years. More than four years. Whoa, more than five years, more than six years, more than seven years, more than eight years. Holy cow. All right, somebody still up here with more than eight years? Did I see a hand up? No? Holy cow. Nine years? Ten years? Eleven years? Twelve years? 13 years. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. All right. Now let's go the other direction. How many of you dated for less than a year before you got hitched? Less than a year. 
Less than nine months. Less than six months. Less than three months. Less than a week. Whoa! See, all right, so I have a hypothesis, and I wonder, at some point I want to do an official, like, survey and figure out how the pre-marriage time and the length of time there relates to uh, the marriage. And, and my hypothesis is that there is absolutely no correlation whatsoever. <laughs> because um, uh, Elizabeth and I, when we were dating, we, we dated for four years, which was really because of the fact that her parents were super lame. And they, her dad's name is Phil, and he was like, <laughs> he was like, if you're going to get married, uh, you cannot get married until you graduate school for her, graduated from college. And that's not actually what he said. What he said was, uh, I'll pay for your school if you wait until after you graduate. And for us, we're like, all right, that's a good deal. At the time, though, it was like a super bummer. As I look back on it now, though, like that four years was awesome. And even if I could like give a little bit of advice for anybody who's 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, here's what I would say. And I know you're not going to listen to me, but this is gold. Don't date until you're 22 years old. Okay? I, I, I get it. I get it. (laughs) Don't date until you're 22 years old, and here's why. Because you don't even know who you are until you're 22 years old, right? Figure out who you are before you try to figure out who somebody else is, and you get to get to know yourself before you get try to get to know somebody else. And I didn't do that. (laughs) And I mean, we started dating, I think, when I was 20, and you were 19, something like that, and and yet, boy, man, I, I would say, okay, I do premarital counseling. And when I do premarital counseling, I could do it in three minutes, okay? I don't, but I could do it in three minutes. And essentially, I would say this. You have no idea, but keep your eyes locked on Jesus Christ, <laughs> and you'll figure it out, right? And uh, the most recent session I did with uh, some people in this church, um, they actually shared with me a book, and they said, hey, here's this book we're reading, and that's essentially what the book was. The guy made millions off of it, I'm sure. He made it bigger. It could have been one page. You have no idea, but keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, and you'll figure it out as you go. And, and even for Liz and me, like, we dated for four years, but I didn't really get to know her until we got married, right? And even still to this day, I'm learning who she is, and I'm I'm hoping that she's learning who I am. And, and, and even to this day, like, there's still this process of knowing, learning, and being known. And, and I don't think you get that until after marriage. So everything before, man, that's, that's great. But you don't really find out who that person is until after you're married. And so keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, and you'll figure everything else out. We're going to continue this series called Meeting Jesus today by opening up to John chapter 3. And if you would grab your Bibles, open up to John chapter 3 this morning. Um, 
<clears throat> if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some that are spread all through the seats. Uh, this morning, uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, grab one of those because we're not going to read all of it, and I encourage you to read all of it. And maybe if not right now, maybe you take it home and you read it. And in fact, if, that, if you don't own a Bible, that little hardback Bible that's in the seat right around you, that's actually our gift to you. Um, while we might not read all of the story, it's super important that you do read all of the story, so take that Bible home and read all of the story. Because we're reading about Nicodemus today, and we're calling it Knowing and Being Known. Knowing and Being Known. We're in John chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1, okay? Uh, John chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now there was a man of the Pharisees whose name was Nicodemus, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So this is, it says that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. This is the first occasion in the Gospel of John, where we have Jesus interacting with a Pharisee. So this is his first interaction with a Pharisee. And, and all through the Gospels, you hear about the Pharisees, and they're not necessarily talked about in a very positive light. And a lot of times, you, you hear even in the Gospels about all of these different, um, uh, different uh, like sects, uh, different groups, and you're like, okay, how does that person relate to this person like, you got the Pharisees, the Sadducees, you got the Essenes, you got the Zealots, you got the priests, chief priests, the Sanhedrin, and you're like, okay, how does this person relate to this person, relate to that person, all these different factions? Um, really quickly, let me just say that the Pharisees were, we, we kind of have this idea that they're, they're, they were the authority, but that wasn't always the case. In fact, the Pharisees were probably more of the, the popular group, Okay because they, they were relatively new, comparatively, and they had the support of the people, okay? They were very conservative. They, they held to scriptures as closely as they could and all of the extra stuff, but they were not necessarily the ones who were in power, okay? The Sadducees, though, were the ones who were the chief priests and the priests in the temple, so the Pharisees did not have, like, the, the temple as part of their domain. The Sadducees did, okay? Now, the Sanhedrin was essentially the, I guess you can call them the Supreme Court. And there were, like, 71 of them. And they saw themselves as, like, spiritually coming from Numbers chapter 11, verse 16, where Moses sets up the 70 people to help him judge, Right? That's where they saw themselves coming from spiritually. So that's why there were 71 of them, Moses and then the 70. Okay, but they probably actually didn't come on the scene until about four or 500 years before Jesus is born. Okay, so they probably came on the scene somewhere after the Jews returned from the exile. So that's the Sanhedrin. Now about 100 years before what we're reading today, the Pharisees had gained so much support being relatively new and gaining so much support with the people that they started getting put into places of authority as well. So you have these Pharisees who start being a part of the Sanhedrin. Primarily before that, it was all Sadducees. But this, from this point on, now the Pharisees start gaining authority as well. So here's what we know about Nicodemus. He is a Pharisee. He's a civic leader, like he's on the Sanhedrin. 
Um, and, and more than that, because he's a Pharisee, he, he has a lot of support. In fact, later on, Jesus says about uh, Nicodemus, he says later, he calls him not just a teacher of Israel, he calls him the teacher of Israel, which is really very interesting. We don't know exactly what that means, but it t- probably means something to the effect of that in his own right, he was a well-respected teacher in Israel. Some people think that even Nicodemus was probably like the key leader or key teacher. We don't know if that's for sure, but, but he's called the teacher, the leader. Anyways, so he's got, he's got a lot of support. He's, he's on the Sanhedrin. He's a civic leader. He's a pretty good guy. I mean, upstanding, right? And Nicodemus, it says, who is a ruler of the Jews, which is probably another phrase saying that he is on the Sanhedrin, It says, this man came to Jesus by night. He came by night, which makes him the very first Nick at night. I didn't tell those kind of jokes when we were dating, um, because probably we wouldn't have made it to marriage, had I? Um, it's actually a relatively new thing, uh, those kinds of jokes. I, I would leave, too. Um, uh, it's probably a relatively new thing. It's, it's, I think, actually, I wouldn't... I, I think it's tied to being a dad. Have you noticed that? Like, as soon as you become a dad, you have to tell dad jokes. Like, I remember all the jokes my dad used to tell, and now I catch myself saying them like when you're at the grocery store and the person behind the cash register says do you want your milk in a bag and you're like no no just leave it in the carton (laughs) or or when somebody says hey you all right you're like no I'm half left Or when you're driving in the car with your kids and, and you're driving by the farm and you see the cows out in the field and you're like, hey kids, that cow is outstanding in its field. <laughs> my dad did it. I knew when they were coming. It was the same jokes over and over again. My kids are going to get it too. That's just the way it works. So this is Nick at night. Okay. So we don't know why Nicodemus comes to him at night. And there's a lot of different ideas when it says that, okay, uh, that this man came to Jesus by night. Like, why did, why, did, why did Nicodemus come at night? Like, some people think that it's, it's, uh, he's not embarrassed, he's afraid. Uh, John chapter 12, verse 42 says that there's some people who were even in the leadership who believed in Jesus, but they, they didn't want people to know, and so they kind of kept it under wraps, and so maybe that's what it is. Some people think that that's the case. Some people think, um, and I've heard people make a case for the fact that Nicodemus came at night because the, the real kind of searching the scriptures happened at night, so he's being genuine and genuinely coming to Jesus, and, and that's a possibility. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know why he came at night. I will say that every single time, that John brings up that it's nighttime or mentions night, every single time he is talking about spiritual darkness. Let me show you a couple of them. John chapter 9, verse 4. There Jesus is talking. And he said, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. 
Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Night is coming when no one can work. It's talking about that spiritual darkness. In John chapter 11, verse 10, it says there, Jesus again talking, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Again, talking about the spiritual darkness. And he uses it even when, for example, Judas betrays Jesus. He very clearly points out in John chapter 13, verse 30, that when that happens, it's nighttime. 13 verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. So we don't know why Nicodemus came at night, but John clearly all through mentions night specifically in relation to spiritual darkness. So for whatever reason that Nicodemus came at night, what we catch from it is that Nicodemus's own night was darker than he thought. Okay? So John chapter 3, verse 1, uh, it says that uh, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. The fact that Nicodemus calls Jesus a rabbi is, should be surprising, right? Because here is this man who is... I mean, in his own right, he's done a lot of training, he's put a lot of effort in, he's studied the scriptures, he's gone through the process himself, is known as the rabbi of Israel, or whatever that, that means, and, and he is referring to an unlearned carpenter as rabbi. So, whatever else we know about Nicodemus, we do know that he comes and shows respect to Jesus, even probably some humility before Jesus, or at the very least has uh, the ability to speak to Jesus in such a way, because not all of them did. I mean, there are other times where they call him, I mean, all kinds of names, and they say he's demon-possessed and all of that stuff. And so the fact that Nicodemus, when he comes, refers to him as rabbi, that says something about even his own, uh, the way that he's approaching Jesus. And he says, Rabbi, we know. Rabbi, we know. And it's first person plural, we, not Rabbi, I know. And there's some question as to why it's we know instead of I know. Like there's some question because this happens, it, it shows up in John chapter 3, this happens in Jerusalem, we know it's in Jerusalem during the Passover feast, and it's right after Jesus goes into Jerusalem and clears out the temple. Now, we don't know if that's the time that he does it during his last week or if it's happening also at the beginning of his ministry. Some people say that John's just taking it out of order and he's, he's, he's just putting it in a different place in his gospel and it's just not chronological. Uh, some people say that, that he probably does it twice. Based on what I read, I think he did it twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry, once at the end of his ministry. It doesn't really matter. What we know is Jesus is in Jerusalem, and it says that as he comes, uh, or as he's there in the night, Nicodemus comes to him, and he says, we know. Now, why he says first person plural? Again, lots of ideas. Some people think that Nicodemus is coming along with all of his disciples. It's like... West Side Story, anybody? And Jesus is there with all his disciples. And Nicodemus is like, yo, Jesus, or Rabbi, we know. And he's talking about him and his disciples. Some people say 
that probably what's happening here is that Nicodemus, as an official emissary of the Sanhedrin, is coming to Jesus and saying, we, as in like, we the Sanhedrin know, that you are a man sent from God. Like, um, that, that maybe he's an official emissary to figure out, okay, so why did you do what you did in the temple? Like, some people think that that's the case. And some people think, and this is probably what I think, but it doesn't really matter what I think, I think he's just throwing up a smoke screen. Like, he's coming in to Jesus, and instead of saying, Jesus, I know, he says, Jesus, we know. As if maybe removing himself a little bit from it. And we don't know what Nicodemus' motivations are here. I kind of wish we did, but we don't. Nicodemus shows up two other times in the Gospel of John. And in both of those, he's kind of spoken of favorably. In John chapter 7, um, the, the leadership's kind of getting together and they had apparently sent these guards to go arrest Jesus. And the guards come back and they don't have Jesus with them. And the leadership's are like, wait, why don't, why don't you have Jesus? And they're like, he speaks with such authority. But really, it comes down to, John's very clear, the reason why they don't arrest him is because it's not Jesus' hour yet. It's not his hour. Okay? So, but then the leadership goes, you guys are fools. You're just guards. And you know everybody else? You're all condemned because you're all following him. And do you see any of us, the leadership, following him? And then all of a sudden, Nicodemus raises his hand. And here's what it says he says in John chapter 7, verse 50 and 51. Uh, uh, do, 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 50, 51. Here it goes. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, to him, Jesus, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, the leadership, said to them, um, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Wait, if we're going to judge him, don't you think we should at least know him first? Don't you, don't you think we should look into it a little bit? And we don't know if at that point he's already in Jesus' camp. We don't know. He shows up one other time, and that's after Jesus is crucified. And after the crucifixion, he shows up along with Joseph of Arimathea in John chapter 19, verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, and some people think that with him coming, and it says he came at night before, now he's stepping out, who knows. We don't know if Nicodemus ever accepts Christ, if he receives salvation. There's traditional thought, and there's history, and there's some things, but biblically we aren't told what happens in Nicodemus's heart. And really, we don't know what his motivations are for coming that day to meet with Jesus. All we're given in John chapter 3 to kind of figure out what his motivations are, verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know. And I wish so much that I knew what caused him to come. I wish I knew what was going on in his heart. I wish I knew what was his motivations, but I don't. You know who does? Jesus. And you want to know how I know that? Well, you got to read the introduction. 
I don't know when you read a book, if you read the introduction or if you just skip to chapter one, I always read the introduction. And the introduction to this story does not come in John chapter three. It comes right before John chapter three in John chapter two, verse 23. A few verses before that. Here is the introduction to this story. Okay, here's what it says. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Okay, here's how I know this is the introduction to the story of Nicodemus. Okay, Read it and pay attention to the words. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this Man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Okay, very clearly here, the same words show up like four times in two or three verses. Which means that chapter 2, verse 23 through 30, or 25 is an introduction to the story of Nicodemus. So don't be afraid to straddle chapter 3. The Holy Spirit didn't give John like... And now chapter 3, verse 1, right? There are no chapters and verses. Don't be afraid to straddle it. You won't get a theological wedgie. All right, chapter 2, verse 25. Here's what it says. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. What? When they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Verse 24, super interesting. Jesus did not entrust himself to them. The actual language says this. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. Really interesting. And it's a sermon for another day. Because we can't stop and pay attention just to that. What we want to pay attention to is this. He knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness. He didn't need anybody to tell him, here's what's going on in this man's heart. Why? Because he already knew. And all through the Gospels, you see this picture very clearly spelled out. Just in John, you see it spelled out. In John chapter 1, verse 48, when he's calling the disciples, he calls Nathaniel. And Nathanael says, how did you know me? And Jesus says to him, before Philip called you, I saw you. Same word. The, the word saw and the word know are very close here. There's only like a letter difference. <laughs> he said, before he even, I saw you. I know you before that even happened. And you see, his, he knows motivations. He knows thoughts. He knows, and in, all the way at the end of John, in chapter 21, verse 15 through 17, there's this occasion, the beautiful occasion where Jesus has been risen from the dead. They go out fishing. They come to the beach, and there's Jesus, right? And, and Peter uh, and Jesus have a conversation, and Jesus asks Peter, 
do you love me? And he asks him three times, which maybe because of the fact that he betrayed him three times or denied him three times, we don't really know, but he does. And that third time he asks him, do you love me? Peter replies, and he says, Jesus, you know everything. You know that I love you. You don't need me to tell you that I love you. You know everything that's going on in my heart. You know me. You know everything. You see everything. You don't need me to tell you what's going on because you already know what's happening inside of me. John chapter 6. We're told that Jesus knew before Judas betrayed him that he was going to betray him. John chapter 6, verse 64. Here's what it says there. John 6, 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray them. So Jesus knows. He knows everything that's happening in this heart. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, maybe to obscure, who knows, And he says, we know, maybe too obscure, who knows. But all through it, Jesus knows exactly what's happening in Nicodemus' heart. He knows why Nicodemus is coming. He knows the motivations underneath the motivations that he tells himself are the reason that he's coming. He knows it all. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus in chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Now, do you notice that he doesn't ask a question? There's no question mark at the end of that sentence. That's because there's no question there. This guy comes to Jesus, and he makes a statement And his statement is this. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. In other words, I've seen the signs. I've seen the miracles. And I have made the determination, based on this criteria, that you are from God. And there's no question there, but there is an inherent question at the end of it. And it's a question I hate. I used to read a blog every single day. Um, And then I realized I don't have time to read a blog every single day. And the guy retired. His name was Vic. And he wrote this blog called Ask Vic. And it was about the Green Bay Packers. It was on Green Bay Packers' regular website. Yes, I wasted a lot of time reading a bunch of people's questions that they would submit. And then Vic would respond to. And I remember one time that he said it, because people would make statements about some player or some position group or the Packers or some opponent. And then they would end the statement with, what say you? And Vic one time just goes off. says, if you ask that question, you are not asking a question. You're saying, here's my statement. Either prove me right or prove me wrong. And he said, I hate that. Now I realize how much I hate what say you. (laughs) And that's what exactly Nicodemus is saying. He comes and makes a statement to Jesus. We've seen your miracles. 
we've seen your signs, and I've made the determination, based on the criteria that I've seen, that you are a teacher sent from God. What say you? So here's what Jesus says. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus' response here is kind of short. It's a little harsh, actually. And we don't catch that right off the bat because of the fact that it doesn't completely communicate the way it would have in the original language. When you realize that the same word for know that Nicodemus uses is the same word that Jesus uses for see, except with like one little letter kind of changed, then all of a sudden you get that Jesus is being short. And this is why people always question Nicodemus's motives. Like they come to him and say, well, he must not have had the right motives. Because Jesus responds kind of harsh, so much so that like, I almost skipped this story for meeting Jesus because I'm like, wow, Jesus, you're a little harsh there. And you're nice, Jesus. You're lovey, Jesus. And we're meeting Jesus here, man. Like, this is like, we got to meet you. And, and you're being mean here. Let's skip to chapter 4 where he's at the well. Because he totally speaks differently to her than he does to Nicodemus. I mean, fundamentally different. In fact, that's next week's sermon, so... I don't want to get too much into that, but he speaks fundamentally different to her. Well, he, he's like, listen, I can give you water so that you'll never be thirsty again. And here he's like, oh, you've seen my miracles, and you know that I'm from God. Unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. You think you know that I'm from God? You cannot even evaluate the criteria about who I am until you are born again. It's a little harsh. Now, a lot of times we don't catch the fact that it's really kind of harsh because here is Nicodemus, a guy who has it all together, a guy who is a civic leader, who apparently comes at least with some humility, so it kind of is a pretty good guy. And Jesus says to him, you have to be born again. Now, how much work did you put into being born? I mean, we celebrate your birthday. We celebrate my birthday. But were you born by your great effort? Did you put together a Gantt chart and figure out, we're going to do this then, and then this then, and then this then? Was it all your planning that made that thing happen? Uh, no. And guess what? If we're going to come to Jesus, we need to come to him in that exact same way. And it doesn't matter whether we have it all together or not. Nicodemus has it all together. And we think sometimes that, like, accepting Jesus is for everybody whose lives are in shambles. But that's not always the case. That was the case for me. My life was in shambles, and I met Jesus, and then my life wasn't in shambles anymore. But some people come to him when they're rich, and they need to come to Jesus on the exact same ground as somebody who's poor. We can be good looking or ugly. You come to Jesus on the exact same ground. You can have it all together or you can have it all falling apart. But we come to Jesus on the exact 
same ground. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus, oh yeah, you got it all together, but you've got to come to me on the exact same ground as the prostitute and the tax collector and the sinner and the person who was caught in adultery and is about to get stoned. You have to come to me on that same level. Doesn't matter how good you've got it or how great you've been. You come on the exact same ground. And until you do, you don't know anything. Now, that's a little harsh. And let me say to you, if you're in here and you think you know Jesus, but you have not yet realized your deep, deep need for him, can I just say, lay it before you and let you pick it up or not, you might think you know him. You don't know anything yet. You might think that Jesus was a good man who was deified by his followers. You don't know anything yet. You might think that Jesus is great for those whose lives are falling apart, but boy, I've got it all together. You don't know anything yet. And you may be a skeptic, you may be an outsider, you may be genuinely seeking Christ, but until you bow your knee before him, you cannot know him. And until you do that, you cannot even evaluate the criteria in order to make the decision. Starts with that act of faith. Now, what I love about Nicodemus is that the signs and the miracles were intended to be a conversation starter, right? He comes and he makes this statement to Jesus, and Jesus does respond in such a way that is very short. He's pushing Nicodemus on something different. Have you noticed how Jesus responds differently to everybody? He responds differently to Nicodemus than he does to the disciples, than he does to the man at the pool of Bethesda, than he does with the woman at the well, than he does with all of us. He, he pushes on different areas. And the reason why he speaks differently in chapter 4 to the woman who's at the well in Samaria is that he is pushing on her deep need for satisfaction. She couldn't find that satisfaction anywhere else. And so he says, you're thirsty, and I'm the only one who can meet that need. And then he's speaking to this man, Nicodemus, and he's not pushing on his deep need for satisfaction. He's pushing on his smug self-satisfaction. He says, oh, you think you know based on the criteria. And Jesus says, you cannot even see the kingdom of God until you come in faith and in humility and bow your knee. You must be born again. And so I would say to you, if you haven't realized that deep, deep need for Jesus, you don't know anything yet, but keep asking questions. Because that's what Nicodemus does. As I read through the story Nicodemus, after this, Jesus says some stuff, and then he starts asking questions. And as a result of the fact that he didn't just stop 
at the start. Like, he didn't stop at the conversation starter. He didn't stop because he was invited to church, or he didn't stop because of the fact that he has heard a few things. He didn't stop there, but he kept asking questions until he has, in John chapter 3, the most beautiful step-by-step process we need to go through in our hearts in order to see the kingdom of God and in order to become a part of the kingdom of God as a result of the questions he asks. So don't stop at the start or at the conversation starter. Keep asking questions. Because we cannot know Jesus until we first are born again. So until you realize your deep need for him, everything else you think you know, you don't actually know. But even as you might not know him, He knows you. Because in John chapter 2, verse 25, it says very clearly, he knew all people, verse 24, and he didn't need anybody to tell him what was inside of a person, for he himself knew what was in a person. You know, I relate with you based on what I know about you and what you know about me. Right? My relationship with you is based on what we know of each other. My relationship with my wife is based on what I know of her and she knows of me. We relate based on our knowledge of each other. But there is one that we relate to, that we relate to as those who are utterly laid bare before. And that can be a scary thought. Because he knows me better than my closest friend. He knows me better than my wife knows me. In fact, he knows me better than I know myself. Because this week, there were some things that were happening, and I'm like, here's how I'm going to handle it. And I thought, man, I'm, I'm doing this with the right heart and the right motivation. And then the Holy Spirit went, let's just show you what's really underneath that. And there was this deep realization of, wow, that was actually selfish motivation, self-promotion, and it was all about me. I hate it when the Holy Spirit does that, but I love it when the Holy Spirit does that. Because what that means is, regardless of the veneer I put over the top of it, he knows. And he'll show me it if I put myself in a place of humility. So he knows it all. He knows every bit. And that thing that you hide from others, he knows already. That thing that you have not even shared with your spouse, he knows already. He knows it all. And what is absolutely beautiful about this, absolutely beautiful, is where is this passage leading to? Verse 16. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He knows all and he loves all. He sees it all. He sees all the ugly 
He sees every bit of it. There's nothing hidden from him, and yet that does not stop him from loving us. In fact, think about it. If you had this skill that Jesus had, and you could see everybody's thoughts and everybody's motivations, like you could surf that like all the way. Like you know exactly what people are thinking and you can like make yourself awesome, right? You could surf your way through your life and you'd have it good the entire way. And he knew everybody's thoughts and motivations and everything. And what I love about it is that it still led to the cross. He knew Judas was going to betray him. And he still chose him as a disciple. Because his love was so great in spite of the fact that he sees it all. And he knows what's going on inside of here. And he loves me deeply in spite of it all. You see a little bit of a veneer. My wife sees a little bit more, but he sees it all. And he loves me. So you may not yet know him, but he knows you and he loves you deeply. And he walked his way all the way to the cross. You are utterly known by him. And when you come and you meet Jesus, that's what it is. It's us just barely getting to know the one who already utterly completely knows us. That's meeting Jesus. And Nicodemus comes in the night, up a smoke screen, but Jesus sees right to the heart of it, and he pushes right where he needs to push to get to a much deeper discussion. And so this morning, I don't know if you're here because you're here with a spouse, or you're here with a friend, and maybe you've got it all together, and you're like, Jesus is great for those who need him. Boy, you don't know nothing yet. And please, please, please keep asking questions until you find your own deep need for him because that's when you'll meet him and you won't know anything until then. I love you, but you don't know anything yet. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. And what I love about meeting Jesus as we read these stories is Again, he interacts with each of these people in a unique way for each and every one of them, and he pushes on different things for each one of them. And for some of us, boy, there's a smug self-satisfaction, like I got it all together. And for some of us, there's a deep need and a recognition of the fact that I've got no satisfaction. And regardless of how that is, Jesus comes right where we need him to come and works right in that way that only he can because he knows us on a deep level. And so if you think, boy, we pulled the wool over his eyes there, didn't we? He went all the way to the cross. No, he saw us. He saw the failure. And he knew not just where they messed up in the past, but he knew every failure to come and still went to the cross. He knew Judas was going to betray him, and yet he still called him to be a disciple. He knew right where he was headed, and he knows right where each and every one of us. So he knows every failure we've made, every failure we're making, and every failure to come, and still he loves. Boy, I hope you hear that message. Because if you've not yet met him, 
Man, bow your knee before him. And then buckle up, buttercup. Because from then on, he begins to reveal himself to us. And we get to know the one who already completely knows us. Father, we come to you today. And Lord, we come as those, some of us are skeptical and some of us, man, we've got it together and we think, boy, Jesus is for those who are sinners and failures and who have broken lives and boy, mine's going okay, God. But not everybody comes to you when everything's in shambles. But all of us have the exact same deep need for you. Each and every one of us comes to you on the same ground and you say, you must be born again before you can even see the kingdom of God. Boy, may we come and if we're skeptical, keep asking questions just like Nicodemus did. Father, we just pray that you would work in our hearts just the way that only you can. And Father, for anybody in here right now who just sensed that the Holy Spirit is speaking to them, saying today is the day. Today is the day. Accept Christ today. You're not here for your spouse. You're here for you. You didn't know it, but I wanted you here today to hear this message. Jesus is the only way. It's only in him that you will find satisfaction, and he's the only one who will strip away the self-satisfaction. And he's the only one who can meet you right where you are, knowing you utterly and completely and loving you the same. And I just pray that you, by your spirit, would drive that message into hearts, and right now, they would make a a decision, and even speak out these words. I believe in you, Jesus. I believe that you died. I believe that you rose again. I believe that you are God, that you are Lord, and I ask that you would be Lord of my life. And I just pray right now that decision would be made in the name of Jesus, because nothing else will do it. Don't stop at the start. Keep asking, keep pursuing, and God, I just pray right now that that decision would be made in order that they might truly know you, truly know you, the one who already utterly knows them. I thank you for it. I ask this all in your name, Jesus.